Hello friends and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. If you're looking to train up your supervisors and managers, please check out our newest offering, The Art of Being a Great Boss. In this 13-month program, I'll be taking your managers through our driving results curriculum, which includes topics on communication, performance management, motivation, delegation, problem solving, decision making, team development, and much more. The sessions are virtual, running one hour each month, and I'll do it using our popular sketch and seminar graphic art and storytelling format. No boring PowerPoint, stale stories, and outdated tools and techniques. The sessions are engaging and provide tactical, practical tools that can be used immediately after the sessions. You can either have your entire organization take our program, or if you have just a few folks, join one of our open enrollment cohorts that start every other month. For more information, visit us online at thebossbuilders.com. You know, as we start trying to figure out the best way to navigate the return to work, we're still faced with a lot of roadblocks. Our guest today, Liz Kislick, is a consultant, speaker, and coach that has some really, really good insights on this. We actually kind of deviated from our original topic and found our way talking about square tomatoes and neighborhoods, but I think that you're going to get an awful lot out of this. We talked about new ways to look at our organizations, and we used the analogy of a neighborhood, which was really fascinating. Liz is an extremely interesting speaker. You're going to love this interview. We had a great time. So why don't we quit talking about her? Let's talk to her. Time for us to put that personal item under the seat in front of us. Buckle your seatbelt. Make sure you don't take that mask off. Time for us to take off. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. Liz, welcome to the show. Mac, thanks so much. I'm glad to be with you. Glad you could be here today, too. It is a beautiful Friday out here down in Tennessee. What's it like up in Long Island area for you? Hot and steamy. Hot and steamy. Yeah, we got another month or two of this, and then we start getting into the cold stuff. But uh, for one, I'm ready to get some cooler weather now. That's for sure. I love September. Yeah, September, October. That's the best. Then you guys get your leaf changing, leaves changing a lot earlier than we do. But that's always the best part of flying into the Northeast in the fall is seeing all those leaves down below. So, uh, of course, here I have a lot of them, but I got to rake and blow them. So it takes the fun out of it. It's more fun to watch them over in your part of the country. <laughs> well, I'll look at them for you. Well, we're going to talk today about disruption. And so the word disruption and disruptor gets thrown around a lot. Anytime somebody comes up with a radical idea, they call them a disruptor, which I think it should be a dis destructor, right? I think disruptor would mean you would have something new to replace the thing you destroyed. But a lot of disruptors just destroy things. So we're not going in that direction. We're going to talk about a day of disruptions. But before we get into that, Liz, I was hoping you could share something about your background with us. Oh, sure. So now I am a management consultant and an, an executive coach. Um, I work with all kinds of organizations. What I like to do is focus on the kind of problem that has stuck around for a while, where people have tried to fix it and it hasn't really worked and everybody's very frustrated. 
those are really great challenges, I think, and people are relieved and grateful and appreciative when you can help them get some traction on a problem like that and they're willing to take it forward. And I got to that very circuitous route. Um, like many people, I didn't plan this, but uh, I worked for a small marketing agency when I graduated from college. And at a very young age, I was 23, and I was a vice president responsible for a call center of 300 people. Ooh, Ooh is right. <laughs> yes, you made the, the call right centers, sound. man. Those are like the original sweatshops. Those things, you know. It, it wasn't really like a sweatshop. It was a, a much better environment than that. But 300 people working on lots of different projects, cycling in and out. It was tough. And for an inexperienced manager, it was almost ridiculously tough. And so I learned a lot about different kinds of problems, which ones I didn't want to focus on, um, and where I really couldn't figure out on my own enough of what to do. And I progressed in that firm. And when I left there, um, I started consulting. I subcontracted work from a couple of uh, other consultants as soon as I was out and never stopped. And the kind of assignments shifted because as I got more experienced, I moved from different kinds of call center consulting to giving feedback about what was going on in the larger organization because as anybody who deals with direct customer contact knows when something is going wrong in an organization one way or another, it ends up with a customer and many of them want to talk to you about it. So you can actually start a path of finding out what's not working in an organization from what happens in the call center and when different leaderships were willing to hear about that I then got brought into more strategic discussions, leadership team discussions, et cetera. And so now I work with CEOs and owners and senior executives and do everything from strategy to really figuring out why they're having a turnover problem, why people aren't performing as well as hoped all those kinds of things. And I do a lot of coaching as part of that work. I also write for uh, HBR, Harvard Business Review, and for Forbes quite frequently about these kinds of issues because people are so concerned about them. Yeah. So let's go back to when you, t you work with clients and you help them get through places where they're stuck. Are there patterns of regular situations or is it just you never know what you're going to get? I would say both. Okay. You never know what you're going to get walking in. Um, it is very interesting that no matter how the problem is described up front when a client first gets in touch with me, I always see other things attached to that problem when I actually get involved with the organization. Sometimes what they're describing are symptoms of the real problem. Uh, or sometimes they don't see all the different, you could think of them as tributaries coming off a main river. 
there are all kinds of things that spill over in various places. That being said, there are some kinds of problems that come up pretty frequently. Um, when people don't understand each other, don't collaborate well, don't have the right data, long entrenched conflicts. There are a variety of things and every HR person has heard them that just show up all the time from very specific one-on-one -on -one conflicts to performance issues to whole groups that you know just don't seem to carry their weight the way they should. And um, in today's world, we see all kinds of things depending on how businesses are choosing to return or not to return to their physical places of business. But there are other things going on as well that are very interesting. Um, succession and succession planning is a big one right now because when the work world is disrupted as it has been with COVID, often people reconsider what they want in their lives and in their work lives. And whether you are, are uh, the owner of a business, I work with a lot of family businesses, are you getting ready to pass things to the next generation or succession within teams so that you have the ability to promote somebody who's an up and coming leader? Do they have someone to fill their spot? So the issue of succession all through organization, I think, is a big one right now. So have you noticed a, a real uptick since COVID? Because, I mean, I read a lot of things where people say, I don't want this anymore. I mean, even for me personally, with all the travel I used to do, when it first went away, I was like having withdrawals. And now I, you know, I flew as last month and I thought, God, I hate this. I can't believe I used to actually enjoy this. But I realized I really never did enjoy it. It just was, it is like a, a rock in your shoe. After a while, you just get used to it being in there. So are you seeing a lot of that where people are saying, look, I'm done with this. I want something different. Is that what's creating these gaps where succession plan is a, is a new issue? I'm going to name a couple of things. That's one where people just realize I don't want to do this anymore. Um, but there's a whole other one where it's not I don't want to do this, but I don't want to do this the way I've been doing it. Um, and that, I think, has come a lot from people giving up their commutes and therefore finding all of a sudden, certainly around here, they might have an hour and a half, two hours more in their day. And so their life just feels better to them. That's one kind of thing. Another kind of thing is that despite the amazing stress of having children at home and having to manage uh, their remote schooling and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, some parents and children are much closer than they used to be. And there are parents who are asking, why should I lock myself up in a workplace and not see my kids. It was so wonderful if I could find a job that supports our life needs and I can see my children, why wouldn't I want that? So that's another one. And this is a little sadder, perhaps, Mac, but a lot of people died during COVID. And 
for the people who lost someone, it has caused many people to reconsider just the idea of spending more time with loved ones and how do you fit them into your life if your life is not only road warrior or commuter, but the kind of pressure and on all the time. So for a lot of people, it's actually about trying to negotiate new boundaries in how they manage their workload and their work life. It seems like, so let's see, we'll, we'll date stamp the podcast. So we're the last week of August of 2021. So we've basically as a nation suffered for a year and a half, roughly with COVID. So it's taken people, well, I can only speak for myself. It's taken me a while to get to the point where now I feel like I'm a l relaxed a lot more and I feel like I'm making better use of downtime. I've been eating better, exercising more, sleeping better. But now I worry, okay, when COVID goes away, if it ever does, and things pick back up, how do I get myself ramped up for that? I mean, do you see this as a challenge for people now who've got all this new mindfulness and awareness and family? And I mean, personally, if I was a kid, I would have hated being home with my parents all day. You know, as much as I hated school, I, I hated kind of being around the house even more. But I mean, is that going to be a struggle for people to be prodded back into the crazy life that we all used to live? Do you see that as a potential challenge? I think it is a potential challenge. I think what the, the really big challenge is, people are going to want really different things. That's going to, I, I see that coming. There are so many articles about leaders want everyone back in the workplace. And so many articles about we're never coming back to the workplace. But there are also groups of people who really want to go back, whether they're leaders or not. There are leaders who recognize that there were certain efficiencies created by not having not only buildings and office space, but not having the formalities of face-to-face -face and in-person. Um, I think there are a lot of different things people want. And I'm actually strangely hopeful. And I'm saying hopeful, not optimistic, <laughs> because it's an emotional hopeful and not an optimistic, I see how we get there kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I am hopeful that what this will cause many good organizations to realize is that people are all different and that there is value in all that difference and if you can harness it, if you can provide different options and still figure out how to bring people together so they feel like one culture, I think that could be phenomenal. And I think we will see many, many experiments in how to do that. Well, there's no time like this to try something new. I guess when everything's destroyed, then you know you rebuild it the way you want. And it's weird to kind of think about the trajectory because as soon as everybody went virtual, then I think a lot of CEOs said, oh, this is so efficient. We'll never come back to the office, which was another one of those. It's like saying, I love you to someone and like, wow, I can't believe I just said that. Man, how do you take that? You don't take that back, right? Just like you don't take it. Well, I said we were going to be virtual, but I've changed my mind. So we all got to come back to the office. That's got a recipe for complete disaster. 
So I guess people have been, it seems like they're emotionally stretched. Like, what are we going to do? There's uncertainty. So how do we go from where we are now, where no one really knows, to this new kind of vision that you have for what the future of work would be? Is it going to be a seamless? Is it going to be a little rocky? What do you give it in terms of a time frame? Okay, so let me think about all of that. Um, seamless, forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, rocky, for sure. I think we're going to have messy middle for a very long time. I think there are plenty of places that aren't even in the middle yet. They are pushing the date of come back, come back further down the road, down the calendar as a way of not dealing with it because it seems so complicated. Um, to your other point, I think it's really interesting. The idea of a leader saying, we're out, we're never going back. And then thinking, oh, we need to go back. How do we do with deal with that? That is such a good example of why I don't care what size organization you have, as soon as you have more than yourself, take other people into account before making proclamations. Mm. That would that's actually the thing. Check with your people. It is really fascinating and a little distressing sometimes how much leaders actually think that other people think the things they think and feel the things they feel. And they do that even though they often live a different lifestyle for many of their employees. They have the freedom to choose and their employees don't. Um, some of then it's all across the field. You know, some of them are later in life and so don't have to worry about kids at home for school anymore. Anytime a leader operates unilaterally for something as big as this, there's going to be mess. Yeah. Well, I think without a doubt this, and I think initially a lot of people like me, I mean, the, the most horrible part of what I did was the travel. And yet that's the part that I've suddenly felt this longing to go back and do. And so, you know, if somebody would have said, oh, you're not going to be traveling anymore, I would have said, well, wait a minute, I really want to travel, but give it a couple of months. And then now it's like, no, I really don't want to. It seems like the proclamation when they all came out, it was cheers from everyone. Yay, no more going back to the office. There was some, my mom was one who clearly did not like working from home. And, you know, that was the toughest thing for her, but for most people. So it seems like a leader would have had the, the buy-in of people with something popular. Like if a leader said, well, we're going to opt for a four-day work week. So from now on, you have a three-day weekend every week. Yeah, everybody would, nobody would complain about that. But then how do you pull back from that? How do you back off and say, well, you know, I, I really meant that we would consider that. I didn't say we were, no, I've got you on record saying you're going to say it. So it's that emotional excitement. Yeah, we're efficient. We don't need to come back. Leaders, I think, are going to have, I, I hope people have learned from this. Like sometimes it's better just to keep that thought in your head for a little while before just throwing it out there. And now we base our whole life on, and this is, out here where I live in Tennessee, Liz, now people are buying these little shitty houses for twice what they're worth because, hey, my company said I could work from wherever. And now, number one, they don't have internet where they're living out here in the country. Number two, now their companies say, well, 
you know, we, we kind of need you back at least two days a week. Well, that's a long commute from Van Leer, Tennessee to San Jose, California, you know? That is a wild and very illustrative example, Mac, because in addition to not behaving unilaterally, it's really hard for us. I mean, this is a human issue. This is not just a leadership issue. It's hard for us to see all the ramifications of our choices. These decisions set things in motion or are affected by things over which we have no control. And trying to think about the possibilities, you know, when it looked like remote forever, you're right. A lot of people moved. And now there are these big stresses about, I hate to even say this, companies saying, well, we're going to pay you less because you're not living in the major metro anymore. Wait a second. I made the decision to move based on the pay I had. So when you, you I'm going to, I'm going to give a completely different metaphor. I don't know if this will end up taking us in a different direction, but it's one that I love. So often I get hired to come in and the assignment is called, quote, break down the silos, close quote. I always say I'm not taking that assignment. Okay. And, and I explain why. And then, you know, we figure out a different scope for it. We call it something else. Silos were built to protect their contents, whether it is silage, grain, or missiles. They are keeping something enclosed for safety's sake. You don't want what's inside those silos spilling on the ground or shooting off without a plan. In organizations, silos exist in many ways to keep a particular function on track. It's linear. It's often very hierarchical, uh, might be very process focused and might be too rigid, in fact, but it often helps with things like accountability, quality of work, or uh, reduction of errors. When you knock the silo over without a real plan for how you are coordinating cross-functional interaction, accountability, sharing of responsibility, all that kind of stuff, you can get a mess for a very long time. So the any anything that is, you know, this is the way absolute, we're changing it now, it's hard to take into account all the things that are going to go wrong. What would be a better analogy to use than a silo? Because I have also heard it as like, you know, my rice bowl. Um, but that's when we went back to silo. So I understand the silo protects. I also know there's a company in Northern Virginia, it's called Silo Smashers. And so you can only guess what they do for a living. So you could probably clean up the mess from the silo smashers. But so uh, something that needs to be protected, the, I guess the question is, should that be protected like a missile or grain? And maybe it's healthy to have that in a silo. Do you have to have those conversations with people that assume that's the problem? And I don't know. I'm just talking in circles because I'm stuck on the silo now. Right. Okay. I'm so in the silo. That's, that's my problem. I'm in yeah, a silo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... You ask wonderful questions. Part of, you know, it's, it's um, we're always solving the last problem kind of thing. 
the idea of rigid hierarchies and processes come from an earlier time when you didn't need so much collaborative work, when you were looking more at just straightforward numbers of units produced, numbers of actions taken, those kinds of things. There are still places where that kind of work is appropriate to some extent, a factory floor where there are very specific designations for how every task is to be done and there are specifications and everything must come within a certain range of spec. There you have to stay pretty true to the course and to the ability to quantify what's been produced, how it's been done. But so much of work today, not all of work today, I, I'm going to overemphasize that because anytime we say something as if it covers all work, people in jobs that are not covered by it can go and do something that actually blows them up, going back to your disruptive thought from the beginning. So when it takes a lot of thinking and talking to figure out what to do, then you need need cross-pollination. Oh, maybe we could use a farming motif. Okay. I don't know. The if silos are from the farm too, I so know. we could stay close, right? Right. And more on Tennessee than on Long Island. There you go. In Tennessee. So um, I don't know enough. I'll mess this up, but let me try. Okay. So um, you have cross-pollination of plants to make either a new species or potentially to strengthen one. You take characteristics from one that are robust and maybe add them to something that is delicious but not robust. Mm -hmm. Now, keep in mind, this can get you to that. You've seen the terrible square tomatoes? No, seen, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they are bred to pack and ship. They're wow. not popular. This has been, but it, but it has been tested more than once because the ability to ship a tomato say cross country without damage, that would be fantastic. The problem is they don't taste very good. They don't smell like a tomato. So, gee, maybe this makes my point again, that you have to be really careful what you wish for, because there are, it's, you know, there's uh, um, in physics, the equal and opposite reaction, other things will happen in the world. So thinking it through, saying from the beginning, we're going to run a pilot. We're going to do a prototype. We're going to try this for three to six weeks and collect a lot of data and see what happens and then meet up together and evaluate it together. Those kinds of approaches often will let the problems come to the surface, but not force people to live with them in perpetuity because there's, there's the opportunity to shift. And I'm purposefully saying shift instead of the very, very popular word today, pivot. Ugh, I hate the P word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I used to me, like it until COVID. Then it just got overused, you know? Yes. And why did it get overused? I think it's because it started out as something wonderful and freeing. I was doing a... And then I decided I didn't want to do A anymore, so I pivoted mm -hmm. and I started doing B. It sounds graceful. It sounds 
you know, like choice and chance and move forward. But now it gets used as if this thing is bombing, we pivot. It's like a way to get away from what's terrible and then we'll see what's next, which might be good. But you can't always pivot your way to success. Sometimes you actually have to fix what's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I guess pivot suggests like a 180 degree turn to something new. But again, think about the workforce. I'm going to get sick and tired of pivoting every turn time I turn around. And then pretty soon pivot becomes any other buzzword, you know, like silo or whatever you're going to use. And then it's all confusing. But I think that's how a lot of people have navigated this past year and a half. We just pivot, pivot, pivot. And then I don't know what's going to be left in the end. I mean, we we have changed the way we do things here at Boss Builders. I wouldn't say we pivoted because a pivot might be instead of teaching management classes, I, I don't know, I knit sweaters or something. I mean, that's a pivot to me. You know, we've just made adjustments. But so I, I guess the key is going to be now if so, we're going to go away from silos. We've used the analogy of pollination, right? So we're we're sort of gravitating to each other's flowers for these ideas in the hopes that we do something better that makes square tomatoes. But the square tomato is a good analogy because yeah. first of all, they are ugly. Secondly, they don't taste good. Third, you can ship them, but why would you ship something nobody wants? So the question is who's gonna take the heat for the square tomato? I don't I don't want to find and punish that person. I I'm hope it's to. not I hope it's not the consultant that they hired. Um could be, but the consultant will come up with a new idea. You know, that those things will roll on. I want to try a different metaphor. What if we had neighborhoods of ideas or functions or specialties because during the day or during the block party, you're out with your neighbors, sharing experiences, doing things together, and then you go back to your home, which you sort of keep the way works for you. Mm -hmm. So you like to visit your friend's home and eat their different food, admire their different decor, hang with them, and you do some things together. Um, but then you get to return back in a sense to your roots I don't know if this will really play out, but it just struck me that it, it might be a more humane metaphor. I like it. I mean, that doesn't take into account the neighbor that nobody likes or the gossip. But then again, that's in any organization too. The gossip, the neighbor nobody likes, the person that brings nasty food to the potluck, you know, whatever it is, there's going to be that. And you can't really choose your neighbors, right? Because if you did, they're going to move eventually. So I, I like that. I don't think the, I, I, I'm still stuck on that stupid square tomato though, but, oh, but I think, so yeah, no, that's okay. I just keep trying to visualize this awful thing. And uh, right. yeah, maybe next year we'll try to grow some square tomatoes just for you. Oh, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I guess, so that's the opposite of what we call silos then. So w if we had this, I, so I'm thinking now, and maybe this could be something that, you know, as things wind down, you know, your focus will be, how do we rebuild you know, the new thing. I mean, could that almost be a, a new type of organizational design? The structure is almost the neighborhood model where 
you know, we, we are individual teams, but we collaborate at the block party and we can feel free to visit our neighbors, but we all have a fence around our yard, you know, cause like that poem says, you know, good fences make good neighbors, but you know, the fence can be, uh, uh, I don't know. My, now you got my mind going crazy because I love the analogy. I, I think that should be a very organic look at how we structure ourselves and the freedom that you have as neighbors to do your own thing without bothering others. Like you don't want to get in your hot tub naked. You don't want to play loud music or have a barking dog, you know? So there's certain things you need to do to be a good neighbor. There could be merit in this. We could work on this. The fences yeah. have gates so you can get through to each other easily. Mm -hmm. um, you have to come together to fix the streets. Yes. Or, you know, those kinds of things. I think in the return to workplace question, this might not be a bad metaphor for looking at what are our shared goals and what are our individual goals. And in the Venn diagram of goals, can we get enough of both at the same time? Because the place where you can get enough of both is where you want to be. Yeah. So then you could decide as a family whether this is a neighborhood where you really fit in. And then you might realize this is we're not a we're not good neighbors here. And before I offend my neighbors, it's probably best that we move. You know what I'm thinking about? The I know question. it's not square tomatoes. Go, no, oh, no. go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> no. It's so I would rather call it is this the neighborhood where I can be a good neighbor and have good neighbors? Yeah, I'm writing this down. Me too. <laughs> All right. So the good news about this, Liz, is that this is something you've just created as we've sat here talking. Um, the person who's listening today is thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we really need to have that, that thing, that neighbor thing. Um, Nobody, as far as I know, has ever thought of this before. So, I mean, obviously, this is something that we should really consider. I just see the flexibility and freedom in this model where, you know, again, when we have our block parties or our HOA meetings, you know, we need to pull together. Yep. And, and those things are done to, you know, air out grievances we have, talk about things we need to focus on. Yeah, it could almost switch into a totally different model for things. And I really like that. And there's a balance, right? Because you want some privacy from your neighbors, but in the same, you want to be able when you go out and see your neighbor and wave to them. So, uh, man, this is very rich, you know? Wow. I really like this. That's great, Mac. Yeah. I think it, I think it is useful. And I think what we just did was actually an exercise in thinking about what do we mean? What do we mean? when we use the terms that everybody uses. One of the things that I see a lot is I meet with a, an executive team on a problem. They all use the same language, but they mean different things. Hmm. Whether it is that they mean different things when they say, oh, we want excellence, or they mean different things when they talk about um, what kinds of employees they have. They use terms that are like the business jargon we were talking about before, but because there isn't 
a periodic examination of what that term really holds and our expectations of how that translates into not only, say, mission and goals, but desk level work. And when it's not clear, that's how you get conflict. That's how you get stalled progress on initiatives because people think they're talking about the same subject and they're not. And specifically for HR, HR can get really sideswiped by that because often it sounds like normal language. This particularly happens to people in HR who come into a new organization. But what that language means here is different from how they've heard it used before. And in any job role new, if you don't ask specifically by what do you mean about this expectation, explain to me what would be a good one and what would be a bad one so I can see the range. When we come in to, I'm going to call it trusting, as if everything has been explained automatically, people can go off on the wrong course, really take a wrong path, and look like they don't fit well because they really don't understand each other. And then they can look incompetent, even though they're very competent and just pointing in the wrong direction. It's amazing how just words alone can create that divisiveness, especially I would imagine in the ears and heads of the executives. They're like, wow, this is crystal clear. Like somebody listening to us is thinking those two people are whacked out with that neighborhood. I have no idea what they're talking about. But to you and I, it's like, man, this could be the next big thing. Right. Right. But it's the operational definition of what a word means. How do we define excellence or engagement or culture, whatever those things are. Right. One of the ones that I've seen trip people up unbelievably is business model. Mm. Do you know what people mean when they say business model? It's hugely divergent or worse, strategy. Sometimes strategy is like the top line of this is what our business does in some organizations. And other people use the word strategy to say, here's a strategy. And what they really mean is I had an idea. So these kinds of catch-all terms, I think they can be really dangerous. We got off on this neighborhood riff and we feel we understood each other because we did it together. Mm -hmm. The truth is we might actually have completely different pictures in our minds about what the fences look like and what the block party looks like. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we come to our next meeting and if we haven't defined it further, you're bringing, I don't know, some kind of jazz of some sort and I'm bringing um, old time folky stuff. And we're shocked. We're shocked because we understood each other. We were so confident we were on the same team. Talking about stuff in depth is so important, but it takes time. And time and attention are two of the toughest things to come up with. Well, you know, it's funny, as you were talking about that, I thought, 
this is even a good example because personally, I live on 32 acres because I hate neighbors and neighborhoods. And I would imagine you're probably, or have, you know, I'm guessing if you're up in the New York area, unless you're upstate, you probably got neighbors. So yep. everything about having neighbors, I mean, we have neighbors that are about a mile away and I love them, but I had neighbors on top of me in Maryland and I hated every moment of it. No privacy, yep. everybody in your business, uh, everybody bragging. And that's often what we see in organizations. So even this utopia that we've designed together, the neighborhood model, I'm already not interested in being in the neighborhood, but you know, everybody else could go to the neighborhood. Me, I'm living out in the country. Right. So yeah, you can really see how these things can fall apart. Yeah. Humans, we're really difficult. Yeah. yeah. But so valuable. And putting the time and attention in to know who you're working with, what they mean when they speak, what they actually care about, and then to look at where can we create partnerships, the block party equivalent, where can doing things together be either more effective or more efficient, sometimes not both, than doing it separately. Okay, that's a win. Let's do that one. Um, you know, you pay for it one way or another. Either you pay by investing time, money, attention, energy, whatever you want to count, upfront and in maintenance all along the way, or you pay when there's a crisis and things fall apart. Yeah, and I think that's where most organizations tend to go, which is probably why you get the call when it's a total disaster and then you got to go help clean up the mess, huh? Yeah, although, you know, many of those companies go on and do very well, half cleaned up, not so cleaned up. Think of all the companies that you've been in that have problems all the time, and yet they still make money. Yeah, we call that uh, successful in spite of yourself. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So some of it's true for us in life, too. Mm -hmm. If you get enough things right, you can keep moving forward. And if you're not dead or bankrupt or whatever the, you know, terrible, terrible, terrible condition is, you can shift and adjust a little bit and try again. Well, I'll tell you what, Liz, this time has flown by. And what I've taken from this is that you really know your stuff. And, and so for the listener today who says, wow, that that's exactly what we need to do. We haven't made our return policy yet. We're still thinking about it. I really think I need to have Liz. Liz, how do we find you? How can we reach out to you and have you help us define our neighborhood or whatever it is that we want to build, even a square tomato? I love that, Mac. Thank you so much. So the best place is actually my website. That's www.lizkislik.com. And that's L-I-Z-K-I-S as in Sam, L-I-K. And um, if anybody in your audience could use it, there's a free ebook that they'll find there about the interpersonal aspects of conflict that can be useful. And, and that gets you my blog or my newsletter, whatever you want. There's loads of material. Um, and they can also find me, of course, on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Excellent. And then some of the articles, are those tagged in your website or oh, yeah. you have to do some searches? Because uh, after this, I'm going to do some digging too. You're a very interesting person. And I, I am interested to see some of the things you've done. So 
This has been great. I've really enjoyed having you on the show today, Liz, and I really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. It was such an interesting conversation. I liked it too. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well.